Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 90% for October 15th, 2022. And the intro music, as always, is Leonard Cohen's Democracy, which expresses what we try to do in this program so well that we never bother to look for something even better. Mm-hmm. And you are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 101.5 KFGM. 
four characters, five, excuse me, eight without any punctuation till you get to the dot O-R-G. And now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash V-O-P hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, radio buying for the 99%. Then today it's only Jim, sound man Jim, and Mark Anderlich, all other things on this program. So good evening, Mark. Hello, Jim. And uh, let's we've got a heavy burden to shoulder without our, our guest friend. I, don't we all? Yeah. Uh, but we're up to it because we're community radio, community powered, and we can overcome any burden. That's it. That's that's right. That's the positive attitude. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why not? We broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording the show from the comfort of our own homes, though, which are similarly located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. And despite all of our deepest wishes, I am sure, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part by wearing masks when we are inside in public, by frequent washing of your hands, and by getting a vaccine if that's you so uh, feel moved. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And as always, we want to give old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick, I hope you're doing well. Yeah, Mick, we could we welcome you back anytime. You could be the third guy in the third shoulder to carry the burden today if yeah. you could be here. <laughs> well, um, despite just being a duet here, uh, we still <laughs> have a good show today. Um, we have all kinds of important stuff to talk about, and it seems like there's no shortage of topics. Uh, we have an excellent interview with Missoula doctors Lauren Wilson and Tim Mitchell. She is a pediatrician, and he is an obst obstetrician-gynecologist. They talk about Legislative Referendum 131, the seriously misleading Born Alive Infant Protection Act, put on the Montana ballot by the Montana legislature. That should be a good interview. Oh, yeah, that should be. Very good. I look forward to hearing that as well as the rest of the show. So I will stick around. I'm and so learn all glad. about Infant Protection Act. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that, Jim, because otherwise I'd have to do this myself. Um, oh. And we would lose our sound footing without our sound sound man. Oh, that's true. <laughs> sound infantile sound man. <laughs> but uh, we'll learn more about that from the good doctors. Our word of the week. What we feature of the show we all look forward to is neoconservative or neocon for short. Why is our word of the week important to understand, Mark? Well, uh, because President Biden's foreign policy team on Ukraine and Russia is led by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Nuland, and both are neoconservatives. Oh, that's all we need. After what we've done the last 40 years, we use the word neoliberal, short for neoliberal capitalism. 
But these two words, neoliberalism and neoconservatism, uh, are not the opposites they first might appear? Explain that, Mark. Yeah, well, that, that's right, Jim. Neoliberalism is a belief that markets can solve all of our economic and social problems. Neoconservatism is a belief that the U.S. as the only superpower should guarantee capitalist democracy in the world through the use of military force. Uh, that is not only confusing, it, is, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. And if I could mix metaphors and move from the kitchen to the garage, I'll say yeah. sounds like taking a match to a fire to a pan of gasoline. Yeah, well, yeah. it's true. And um, uh, but first, as our regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include this note about Wikipedia. And here is that note that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, quote, neoconservatism is a political movement that was born in the United States during the 1960s among liberal hawks who became disenchanted with the increasingly pacifist foreign policy of the Democratic Party and with the growing new left and counterculture of the 1960s, particularly the Vietnam protests. Some also began to question their liberal beliefs regarding domestic policies, such as the Great Society. Neoconservatives typically advocate the promotion of democracy and interventionism in international affairs, including peace through strength, and are known for espousing disdain for communism and political radicalism, end quote. Yeah. A history I lived through. So that really gets my attention. So it was the Vietnam War and how it divided Democrats that gave rise to neoconservatism. So it appears, uh, again from Wikipedia, quote, historically speaking, the term neoconservative refers to those who made the ideological journey from the anti-Stalinist left to the camp of American conservatism during the 1960s and 1970s. The movement had its intellectual roots in the magazine Commentary, edited by Norman Podhoritz. They spoke out against the new left and in that way helped define the movement. Neoconservatism first developed during the late 1960s as an effort to oppose the radical cultural changes occurring within the United States. Irving Kristol wrote, quote, if there is any one thing that neoconservatives are unanimous about, it is their dislike of the counterculture, end quote. Norman Podhoritz agreed, quote, revulsion against the counterculture accounted for more converts to neoconservatism than any other single factor, end quote. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of what, of what ended up happening. And, uh, and Norman Podhoritz is still out there. He's, <laughs> He's still, kicking, still he? editing a magazine and pouring it out for us. So the neocons were alarmed at the anti-Vietnam War protests, the counterculture, and the evolution of the progressive left in the 60s? Yes, and they are a reaction to the challenges to the U.S. war-making and imperialism and to socialism in general. In fact, Wikipedia says this about the origin of the word. Quote, the term neoconservative was popular, popular I can't speak today. Um, I got a 
Well, See, that's I, why you got another guy in there. I know. And I got to maybe I'd take another sip of my uh, whiskey here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, um, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah whiskey a go-go you're going to another that that, that that would really not help, right? distilled yeah. spirit right you're good <laughs> the term neoconservative was popularized by in the united states during the during 1973 by the socialist leader michael harrington who used the term to define daniel bell daniel patrick moynihan you remember him and irving crystal, oh god yeah and irving crystal whose ideologies mm. differed from harrington's end quote and some listeners uh, may know that Harrington was instrumental in the formation of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, in the 1980s. DSA is now the largest democratic socialist organization in the U.S. of the past 80 years, with about 90,000 members. And, of course, for transparency's sake, uh, I am an active member of the Western Montana DSA chapter. Uh, active indeed instrumental fundamental act participant so um it's fascinating that neoconservatism grew out of the progressive movement like that's um that's hard to fathom i'm interested in seeing how you can you know show me all the footsteps to going from point a to point b <laughs> well i'm not sure i can show you all the footsteps but there's some some big <laughs> uh, footprints left here that i'm uh uh, th thanks to Wikipedia that I'll, I'll share. Um, <laughs> the defections of moderate progressives from the new left provided the foundation on which neoconservatism was founded. Again, from Wikipedia, quote, through the 1950s and early 1960s, the future neoconservatives had endorsed the civil rights movement, racial integration, and Martin Luther King Jr., from the 1950s to the 1960s, liberals generally endorsed military action in order to prevent a communist victory in Vietnam. Neoconservatism neo was initiated by the repudiation of the Cold War and the new politics of the American New Left, which Norman Podhoretz said was too sympathetic to the counterculture and too alienated from the majority of the population, and anti-communism. Anti Anti-anti-communism. Anti-anti-communism, right. right. <laughs> um, Irving Kristol edited the journal The Public Interest from 1965 to 2005, featuring economists and political scientists, which emphasized ways that government planning in the liberal state had produced unintended harmful consequences. And you remember Daniel Patrick Moynihan being oh, yeah, one the of the guy that told us. Um, what we need to do to cure race relations in this country is some benign neglect. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Um, so many early neoconservative political figures were disillusioned Democratic politicians and intellectuals, such as the aforementioned Daniel Patrick Moynihan, <laughs> who served in the Nixon and Ford administrations, and Gene Kirkpatrick, who served as the United States ambassador to the United Nations in the Reagan administration. Oh, who can forget? Yes. A substantial number of neoconservatives were originally moderate socialists, who were originally associated with the moderate ring of the, wing of the Socialist Party of America, the SP, and its successor party, Social Democrats USA. Max Schachtman, for example, a former Trotskyist theorist who developed a strong feeling of antipathy toward the new left, had numerous devotees among SDUSA with strong links to George Meany's AFL-CIO. Following Schachtman and Meany, 
This faction led the Socialist Party to oppose immediate withdrawal from the Vietnam War and oppose George McGovern in the Democratic primary race and to some extent, the general election. They also chose to cease their own party building and concentrated on working within the Democratic Party, eventually influencing it through the, drumroll, Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thus, the Socialist Party dissolved in 1972 and SDUSA emerged that year. Most of the left wing of the party, led by Michael Harrington, immediately abandoned SDUSA and subsequently formed DSA. And so that's the birth of DSA. That's the birth of DSA, yeah. and that's the birth of the neoconservative movement. Yeah. At the same time. And the undoing of Tom Eagleton and um, George McGovern. And, <laughs> and lots of other things. attempt to make the American society and government reflect the will of the people. Right, right. Yep. So neocons led the way for the second U.S. invasion of Iraq to capture Saddam Hussein, find the mythical weapons of mass disruption, <laughs> destruction. I'm sorry. You know, Freud is here sitting next to me, causing me to make little <laughs> mistakes like that and generally make an undemocratic mess in Iraq. Yeah, you're exactly right. Again, from Wikipedia, quote, after the decision of George H.W. Bush to leave, that's Bush the first, right? Um, yes. To leave um, Saddam Hussein in power after the first Iraq war during 1991, many neoconservatives considered this policy and the decision not to endorse indigenous dissident groups such as the Kurds and Shiites in their 1991-1992 resistance to Hussein as a betrayal of democratic principles. Some of those same targets of criticism would later become fierce advocates of neoconservative policies. Within a few years of the Gulf War in Iraq, many neoconservatives were endorsing the ousting of Saddam Hussein. On February 19, 1998, an open letter to President uh, Jimmy or to uh, Bill, to President Bill Clinton. Sorry, easy mistake to make. Uh, yeah, governors. <laughs> An open letter to President Bill Clinton was published, signed by dozens of pundits, many identified with neoconservatism and later related groups such as the Project for the New American Century. Keep an eye out for that group. Oh, uh, yeah. They would cause more mischief in the future. Yes. Urging and, and they this letter urged decisive action to remove Saddam from power. So President Bush II, W, if you wish. Yes. was not an early supporter of neoconservatism, but he changed his tune after 9-11. That's interesting. Yeah, you, you are on a roll, Jim. Um, this is from Wikipedia. <laughs> the quote, the Bush campaign and the early Bush II administration did not exhibit strong endorsement of neoconservative principles. As a presidential candidate, Bush had argued for a restrained foreign policy, stating his opposition to the idea of nation building. Also early in the administration, some neoconservatives criticized Bush's administration as insufficiently supportive of Israel and su suggested Bush's foreign policies were not substantially different from those of President Clinton, which m must have been the ultimate insult, right? <laughs> um, Bush's policies changed dramatically immediately after the September 11, 2001 attacks. During Bush's State of the Union speech of January 2002, 
He named Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as states that, quote, constitute an axis of evil, end quote, and, quote, pose a grave and growing danger, end quote. Bush suggested the possibility of preemptive war. Um, he said, I will not wait on events while dangers gather. I will not stand by as peril draws closer and closer. The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons, end quote. The Bush doctrine, which that was called, of preemptive war was stated explicitly in the National Security Council text National Security Strategy of the United States, published September 20th, 2002. In that document, um, National Security Strategy, it says, we must deter and defend against the threat before it is unleashed, even if uncertainty remains as to the time and place of the enemy's attack. The United States will, if necessary, act preemptively, end quote. The Bush doctrine is thoroughly neocon. Yeah, I forgot how heinous and crude and stupid that <laughs> their um, their you know proclamations were. Um, I'm guessing that the let's see the axis of evil. This sounds an awful lot like somebody in 1980, um, Evil Empire. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, all the, it's like a Scrabble game, you know, this, all these terms just get moved around and, and made fresh and new for ne- new voters to be conned. Yeah. Neo- That's neocon. voter con, not neocon. Yeah. yeah voter con. That's a good one. Um, and, I, go ahead, Mark. I, well, and, and, and the, the neocons often use like religious language like it's a moral imperative to oh to, do they ever yeah and so it's it's kind of a uh you know that neocon is pretty much a uh <clears throat> is is based on in a certain ethics so uh, uh ethics in <laughs> in a, a a very loose definition of the word doesn't have anything to do with justice goodness being correct it's well well actually to to they the neocons absolutely believe that they are standing up for what's right in the world and that we should be we should use military force in order to stand up for that good that's that that's their that's the ethic right there so it sure is so but there's uh, problems with that for sure yeah there certainly are (laughs) it reminds me of a guy standing in front of a church holding a bible upside down saying these are my ethics. These are my standards. And, and of course, Iraq posed no threat to the U.S. as the Bush administration's claims that Saddam, Saddam, only two syllables, I'm sorry, giving him <laughs> too much credit, had weapons of mass destruction was a lie. And that's even in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You know, don't lie if you can yeah. help it. Yep. Something like that. Is the Bush doctrine still in effect? Well, unfortunately, yes, it still is, Jim. It it is codified in in this document called the National Security Strategy of the United States. Um, The Biden administration uh, just coincidentally issued its first version of the document yesterday. The October 14th article in the journal Breaking Defense, uh, which is a a military, you know, a a military uh, related 
publication includes this summary of the document. Uh, and they quote Emma Ashford, a senior fellow with the Stimson Center. And she says uh, in her critique, but people and nations face constraints, Ashford said. And if the U.S. doesn't have the resources or capability to meet its strategy goals, it needs to moderate those goals. Ashford wrote on Twitter, quote, the NSS, the National Security Strategy, wants to have it all, competition with China, containment of Russia, building global coalitions on climate change and pandemics, shared democracy as a unifying principle in democracy promotion while continuing to work with autocracies, a diplomacy-first approach while maintaining global military primacy, using trade as a core component of foreign policy while rejecting new trade agreements that don't level the playing field, building on existing alliances while establishing new ones. In short, the NSS acknowledges that we live in an increasingly multipolar world, accepts that there are limitations to U.S. power, and then doesn't change policy in response, she says, end quote. I say she really nailed it. That's it. That's an exhaustively thorough list. The only thing I didn't see there is solve world hunger. <laughs> and I told, and you know, the multipolar is mentioned. Well, yeah. that causes me to think about the North Pole and the guy that lives there and <laughs> delivers on unrealistic <laughs> promises every December. And he might even look at that list and tear it in half. Yeah, he so might. Try again. Try, try again. Yeah. So, um, and it sounds a lot like the, the U S policy in regards to, uh, Russia and the Ukraine war. I would yeah. Say. Um, that describes the current U S foreign policy. We want it all. Yeah, I, I think so. And this is a good indication that what neocons want is to maintain and strengthen the U S empire on the U S's own terms. This is from Wikipedia again, quote, John McGowan, professor of humanities at the University of North Carolina, states that after an extensive review of neocon literature in theory that neocons are attempting to maintain an American empire seen as successor to the British empire, its goal being to perpetuate a Pax Americana or kind of a world order enforced by the United States. Um, as imperialism is largely considered unacceptable by the American media and people, I might add, neoconser <laughs> neoconservatives do not articulate their ideas and goals in a frank manner in public discourse, McGowan states. Quote, uh, McGowan states, uh, frank neoconservatives like Robert Kaplan, who is coincidentally husband of Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland. Mm hmm. And Niall Ferguson from England recognized. Oh, there's another dark force. <laughs> yeah, recognize that they are proposing imperialism as the alternative to liberal internationalism. Yet both Kaplan and Ferguson also understand that imperialism runs so counter to America's liberal tradition that it must remain a foreign policy that dare not speak its name. While Ferguson, the Brit, laments that Americans cannot just openly shoulder the white man's burden. Kaplan, the American, tells us that, quote, only through stealth and anxious foresight, unquote, unquote uh, can the United States continue to pursue 
the, quote, imperial reality that already dominates our foreign policy, end quote, but must be disavowed in light of our, quote, anti-imperial traditions and the fact that imperialism is delegitimized in public discourse, end quote. That, that is so sc- scary and disturbing. You know, it sounds like a subplot in a Marvel Comics movie that the world can be so dark and sinister and yet intelligent people that think there are good people at the same time believe it. That's right. That's right. And there is even conservative criticism of neocons. Oh, yeah. How can that be? There there are some. So uh, this is one good criticism from the right uh, from Wikipedia and quoted in Wikipedia. Quote, Stefan Halper and Jonathan Clark, uh, a libertarian based at the Cato Institute, a libertarian conservative, in their 2004 book on neoconservatism uh, called America Alone, the Neoconservatives and the Global Order, characterized the neoconservatives at that time as uniting around three common themes. One, a belief deriving from religious conviction that the human condition is defined as a choice between good and evil, and that the true measure of political character is to be found in the willingness by the former, which is themselves, of course, Mm -hmm. to confront the latter, which is the other, of course, right? So um, they always see themselves as the good people, right? The good guys Mm -hmm. wearing the white hats. Um, The second uh, uniting theme is an assertion that the fundamental determinant of the relationship between states rests on military power and the willingness to use it. And number three, a primary focus on the Middle East and global Islam as the principal theater for American overseas interests. End quote. Hulper and Clark continue, quote, in putting these themes into practice, neoconservatives do four things. One, Analyze international issues in black and white, absolute moral categories. They are fortified by a conviction that they alone hold the moral high ground and argue that disagreement is tantamount to defeatism. We've seen a lot of that this year in any opponent. (laughs) Opponents to the uh, war in Iraq or Ukraine. Two, focus on the unipolar power of the United States, seeing the use of military force as the first, not last option of foreign policy. They repudiate the so-called lessons of Vietnam, which they interpret as undermining American will toward the use of force, and embrace the so-called lessons of Munich, which is Chamberlain and appeasement, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Interpreted as establishing the virtues of preemptive military action. Again, we go back to the Bush doctrine. Um, Three, they uh, neocons disdain conventional diplomatic agencies, such as the state department, which now they control um, and conventional country specific realist and pragmatic analysis. See shoot first and ask questions later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They are hostile toward non-military multilateral institutions and instinctively antagonistic toward international treaties and agreements. Global unilateralism is their watchword. They are fortified by international criticism, believing that it confirms American virtue. And the fourth uh, theme that they put into practice 
is they look to the Reagan administration as the exemplar of all these virtues and seek to establish their version of Reagan's legacy as the Republican and national orthodoxy, end quote. Oh, that sounds way too familiar <laughs> yeah. today. Uh, it's, um, yeah, when it's what mischief have we ever seen in the history of mankind where uh, if you if you alone understand the high moral ground and every and disagreeing with you is tantamount to defeatism, then you know what could go wrong. That's right. It's it's like um, Bush number two saying you're either with me or against me. That's exactly right. That's that is the that's a statement from a neocon perspective. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> neo intellectual uh, for sure. <laughs> Well, and here's another short in uh, critique of neocons from the far right, cited in Wikipedia, quote, responding to a question about neoconservatives in 2004, William F. Buckley, remember him, said, um, I, think I, I think those I know, which is most of them, are bright, informed, and idealistic, but that they simply overrate the reach of U.S. power and influence, end quote. Boy, isn't that the truth? <laughs> or the willingness of people to create a source of force that's so overwhelming <laughs> that right. it can fulfill their expectations. Yeah. So have our current neocons shifted their attention from the Middle East to China and Russia? Yes, they have. And they've, oh. evol they've evolved this part of their ideology as they now regard China and Russia as the biggest threats to U.S. imperialism. Yeah, that's... Uh, interesting and almost comforting because when I hear Middle East and Islam are the the enemies of mankind, it I wonder, well, are they really? And if they are, who benefits from eliminating them? Um, they've got some oil there. Um, I can't substantiate that, but I hear rumors. <laughs> Maybe it's the people with the oil it, it's, that it's are saying true. these people are evil. We must stop them. Yeah. So we can have all we want without them get interfering. That's 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 about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, it, and, and it is actually this is being applied to the Ukraine war. That war oh, is yeah. now, now widely regarded as a U.S. led war against Russia using Ukraine as its proxy military. We have covered this in previous shows that calling the Russian invasion of Ukraine as unprovoked is simply a lie used to get Westerners to support the defeat of Russia and prevent it from becoming a world power again. Every description of the neocons' beliefs we have covered so far seemingly are seemingly driving this reckless war with Russia, provoking China, and punishing those nations who don't agree. The idea of American exceptionalism seems to blind Blinken and Newland, for example, and the mm -hmm. other neocons to the limits of U.S. military and economic power, as Buckley aptly described. In effect, despite all the corporate media to the contrary, what the neocon ideology is doing is actually speeding up the demise of the U.S. empire and threatening us all with nuclear war. Oh, what's the harm in that? <laughs> <laughs> so the same neocon ideology that brought us the humanitarian and political disaster that resulted from the second invasion of Iraq, you know, like the first one wasn't enough. Right. It's what is directing U.S. policy in the war in Ukraine. And that sums it up, Jim. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's 
really, really tragic is I see the news every night and I see moms, children, old people, conscriptees suffering horrendously in the, the physical plant of a country getting bombed into oblivion like so it looks like you know Krakow or Berlin in WW2 yep. is not being constructed. Nope. Maybe that's just me. No, I, I agree with you there. Yep. So uh now we get to talk about the happy stuff, right? As <laughs> usual, lots of news to cover this week. What's first in our current news, Mark? Well, as Take it as, away. as usual, um, despite 22 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now steady at a rate of about 40,000 cases a day, down from over 1,382,000 per day on January 10th of this year, which was by far the highest rates for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. However, now many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of these actual numbers uh, given to us by the C Centers for Disease Control because of the prevalence of unreported home tests lack of uniform data require, reporting requirements by the states, and the incompetence of the CDC. The highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in Taiwan, Austria, Singapore, Germany, Slovenia, France, Italy, Greece, Finland, and Switzerland in that order, where new variants of COVID-19 virus are making the rounds. At over uh, 1,140,000 deaths, and right now, uh, th th that's just a guesstimate. I, I don't even trust mm -hmm. th th that figure. Uh, the U.S. is still by far the world's leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. The U.S. has so far accounted for 16% of all the deaths in the world, and even with unreliable data for 16% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, um, the line we bring forth every week. Those are grib things to be exceptional at. Indeed. And I'll offer, um, it's not very good for the richest, most powerful country in the world, the envy of all, uh, you know, which you hear on other stations than um, community radio. Yeah. Yep. So um, in, Mont in Montana now, uh, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana has had 3,566 deaths from COVID. That's 85 deaths in the last month and a half or two months. Um, this total number of deaths is about equal to that of the population of the town of Glasgow, Montana. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a steady rate of about 157 new documented cases a day. Fully 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID. And there are currently 56 people hospitalized with the virus, down 33 from six weeks ago. We have been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. Uh, it is is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors to distance themselves from others as best you can and to frequently wash your hands. If we're going to beat this pandemic, solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. 
Those are good union words. Solidarity. <laughs> That's right. Is what it takes. Uh, because the vaccines won't protect you necessarily from getting COVID, the trick is not to get infected or reinfected. Is that the that's, theme? That's that's right. And and you know the the the, the vaccines actually could re, you know have been shown to reduce the severity, but they do not prevent you from getting it. Um, and mm -hmm. so um, and and there's some. Uh, now is there some evidence why top government health officials have been silent about improving ventilation in public buildings to stop the pandemic. Um, mm, this is that's uh, interesting. Yeah, this is Lambert Strether writing in the blog Naked Capitalism on October 10th. Quote, so far in the United States, we have been limited to teasing out the motivations for official denial or resistance to the aerosol airborne transmission paradigm in hospital infection control from vague hints in published documents. In fact, from footnotes in official documents. To the best of my knowledge, and I do try to keep track, we've never had an official come right out and say, quote, we're not dealing with airborne transmission in hospitals because that would cost too much money, end quote. Well, mm -hmm. now one has. Granted, the smoking gun is in Denmark, and so there's something rotten in Denmark, I guess, but um, that smoking gun was provided by Steinus Lindgren, a Danish scientist and politician and a member of the Folketing or the parliament of Denmark for the Social Liberal Party. More importantly, for our purposes, Lindgren is chair of Denmark's Epidemic Committee, hence an elected, hence also a reasonably high official in a position to speak with authority about the inner workings of government decision making in the pandemic. Uh, Lynn Green responded to this question posed to him on Twitter on October 4th, quote, which infections exactly do you mean? Because currently COVID-19 is not referred to as an airborne infection under Danish auspices exter and externally to the Danes. Lynn Green responded, it is a dispute about words also in this assembly, but agreement that the infection occurs via the air we share, end quote. The questioner, Fritz Heisterberg, presses further. Uh, in, in front of the population, it is honestly not okay. And it's not just a dispute about words. It's also about how you act in everyday life. Because you can't avoid airborne infection with hand washing, can you? End quote. Lynn Green responds, it is more about what it means for practice in hospitals. End quote. Another questioner Peter Farvolt joins in the conversation. He writes, it also means a lot to know how we arrange ourselves outside the hospitals. Ventilation, HEPA, or you can go outdoors. What about schools? End quote. Lynn Green responds, but other than that, I don't disagree with you. I have raised the issue countless times. And as you know, it took a long time for venting to become part of the official recommendations. End quote. Then Christina Bronsholm Anderson says this, it is not good enough almost three years into the pandemic. The Danish health authorities must communicate clearly that the primary route of infection is airborne and that the best protection is ventilation. HEPA air purifiers and FFP2 and FFP3 masks. The Danes continue to spread their hands against an airborne virus, end quote. Lindgren responds, 
I'm just trying to explain why this designation was not used in Denmark, because it would have consequences for the layout of hospitals. End quote. Anderson retorts, this clearly shows that Sundhed, the Danish health authority, is not able to lead the pandemic response. It is unethical and health-wise indefensible from the point of view of the Danish population that COVID-19 is airborne just because it will be difficult in hospitals, end quote. So to, to sum all that up, the Danish health authorities know that COVID is transmitted through the air, but refuse to create proper ventilation or even wards for airborne diseases in hospitals because of the cost to hospitals. Hmm. <clears throat> this reminds me a lot of the discussion at the beginning of COVID about hospitals and how there were, you know, there was attention paid to positive pressure and making sure that air would be flowing one way because the ambient pressure was higher. Is this, right. is it, is it related to that? Yes. That, yeah. Okay. Because that would be very difficult to change if it isn't built into the structure. Right. And so, yeah, retrofitting hospitals. Well, I mean, there was at one point um, with the measles. There, there's an example that Strother oh. writes in his in his blog um, that hospitals used to have wards that had that negative air pressure at some at some level. At least they were segregated from the rest of the hospital, right? Gotcha. If they, right. It, because measles is very, um, very contagious. And so they had, you know, measles wards, right? And, and separate parts of the hospital where people uh, wouldn't infect other people. Well, they, with the advent of uh, vaccines and such, um, those were eliminated in hospitals, right? And so now the, there's no infrastructure in most hospitals for gotcha. that. Right. Uh, so uh, would you see this as an example of neoliberalism there? Um, uh, to quote somebody else, is there something rotten in Denmark? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I think that was Hamlet that said that, right? Uh, yeah, um, but it was an English guy that put the words in his mouth. That's so that was, right. That, that's right. You know, English uh, imperialism and at work even in that time. <laughs> well, um, I, I perhaps I'm not. I'm not that informed about Danish politics, but <laughs> it, how about it's, pastry? Yes, Danish pastry. I'm I'm an expert at. Um, nice. But but it is a terrible look, and I suspect some of the same dynamics are at work in the U.S. as in Denmark. The question is, why has the U.S. been so exceptional at having the worst response to the pandemic? Strather says this in his Naked Capitalism blog. Quote: As is well known, COVID vaccinations don't prevent transmission. Hence, the hospital layouts of today optimize for the before times when vaccines were sterilizing and coughing people didn't infect each other in waiting rooms and hallways or need to go directly to exam rooms would need to be changed to prevent airborne transmission. I don't know, he said, I don't know why Denmark's hospitals successfully fought to keep the airborne paradigm from coming before the public. That's the other issue mm -hmm. is that clearly um, the Danish health authorities knew it was airborne, but didn't dare say so to the Danish public. Hmm. Um, in this, and same in this country, right? In this country, the, U, mm -hmm. the U.S., I would speculate that private equity or competition by putative nonprofits with private equity-backed competitors uh -huh. was an important factor, he said, end quote. 
Then he goes on to quote from a journal. So th th this is uh, uh, oh yeah, quite quite a, a prestigious journal here, the Journal of the American College of Radiology. And there's an article uh, he quotes called Private Equity Backed Hospital Investments and the Impact of the Coronavirus Disease 2019 Epidemic. Oh, that sounds good. That's what I want for Christmas. That sounds <laughs> like a good read. So uh, this, this is the, 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 the quote. Uh, the restrictive nature of the private equity business model demands an abundance of short-term profits for success. That, in turn makes it unlikely that an investment firm in this class would consider the use of alternate longer-term strategies, including solutions that would avoid hurting physicians and other employees, particularly in the middle of a crisis. If a firm is not going to be involved in the investment after 10 years, then it is unlikely that the private equity investor will be interested in whether the physician culture at a hospital is destroyed. It is also unlikely that much thought would be given to what happens to patients if a hospital goes bankrupt or is turned into a commercial real estate for condominium development. These events during the COVID-19 crisis highlight the limits and the risks associated with third-party financial investments in healthcare. In good times, investors in their portfolio companies can do quite well, but in a stress test like this pandemic, Key stakeholders, including patients, physicians, other providers, and their communities can be significant losers, end quote. Ooh, that just says it all. That is eloquent. Uh, and that, I uh, cannot imagine a more terse and concise description of what is so messed up about the medical industry in this country, along with any number of other things. Yep. It's interesting that... Um, you don't think beyond 10 years when you when you deal in medicine. It's like, well, if they live another 10 years, uh, they're getting their money's worth. Worm. Right. <laughs> and know, so we, where's the return on investment if people are still alive after that? Right. And so mm -hmm. the amount of private equity invested in, in hospitals in this country is probably pretty su significant. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no motivation for them to create wards or to... Uh, retrofit, uh, you know, uh, uh, ventilation systems that would preclude other people getting sick. Just uh, yeah, unless they're shareholders. Unless, well, unless <laughs> uh, they're shareholders. Yeah. Right. It, um, uh, how many times and in how many ways has this program set out to accurately describe a problem? And when you read between the lines and you get to the end of the paragraph, it says. The system is broken. Yes. Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. It hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy 
You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther When the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers For the others to fire And Then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion While the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies And is buried in the mud He's thrown the worst fear That can ever be hurled Fear to bring children Into the world For threatening my baby Unborn and unnamed You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins How much do I know To talk out of turn You might say that I'm young You might say I'm unlearned But there's one thing I know I'm younger than you That even Jesus would never forgive what you do Let me ask you one question Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find When your death takes its toll All the money you made will never buy back your soul And I hope that you die And your death will come soon I follow your casket By the pale afternoon And I watch while you're lured Down to your deathbed And I stand over your grave Till I'm sure that you're dead That was Masters of War by Bob Dylan. Welcome back to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And for our interview for today's show, we are very pleased to have uh, two doctors with us, uh, Lauren Wilson and Tim Mitchell. And uh, uh, welcome, two of you. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Um, very glad to have you on the show. And um, they're going to be talking about uh, legislative um, referendum 131, which will appear on the Montana state ballot come November or when you if you get your ballot early uh, in October. So, uh, first of all, uh, let's do some brief introductions. Uh, uh, Lauren, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, so my name is Lauren Wilson. I am a pediatrician in Missoula, and I'm also the president of our professional organization in Montana, which is the Montana chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. We have 160 pediatricians. Um, and the reason I'm here is pediatricians and neonatologists are the people who are often called to deliveries to help newborn babies um, in a variety of circumstances. Great. Tim, you want to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, of course. Uh, so again, my name is Timothy Mitchell. I'm a um, maternal fetal medicine physician in Missoula, Montana. And uh, many people haven't heard of maternal fetal medicine. And essentially what I do is I, I help take care of pregnancies that are considered high risk. Mm -hmm. So I take care of moms who have underlying conditions that uh, complicate the management of their pregnancy. Um, I also do a lot of um, uh, prenatal ultrasound and prenatal diagnosis, um, prenatal genetics. And so oftentimes patients are coming to me and um, many times, thankfully, they're receiving good news that their baby is growing well and things look great and, and nothing that we need to worry too much about. Um, unfortunately, there are uh, situations when they are coming to me and I'm having to give them very devastating news that mm. um, their baby is not developing correctly, that there are findings that um, are unfortunately not going to be compatible with life outside the womb, um, that they're suffering from pregnancy complications like uh, preterm labor or um, or uh, their their amniotic sac uh, broke early and having uh, uh, you know a, an increased risk of having a delivery far too soon than um, than one would ever expect. Wow, that that's very tough, uh, certainly on on the parents, but also on you too. It sounds like that's that's a very emotionally fraught um, kind of situation. It, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows in maternal fetal medicine, which is one of the reasons I love it. You know, I, um, I really think that it's, um, uh, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do and help guide parents through some of these very challenging, um, uh, unimaginable situations. So I'm just grateful that I can, uh, I can be a resource to families in these very, very, uh, challenging times. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good work. Um, both of you. Um, so uh, on the Montana ballot, there's this legislative referendum 131, which was actually put there um, on the ballot by the last uh, Montana legislature and governor who didn't, who uh, uh, allowed it to um, be on the ballot. Um Either one of you, um, you give a little background on what LR-131 is specifically. Sure. Um, I can take a stab at it and Tim can help. Um, so basically, the legislature last 
April um, passed a, um, a piece of legislature saying that this initiative will, <clears throat> excuse me, will be placed on the ballot in November. Um, and it will be called the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which is a name that is a little difficult um, because I don't think it fully describes what is actually contained in the act. Um, what it entails is um, a healthcare provider can be penalized um, with either $50,000 in fines or imprisonment of up to 20 years if they don't take appropriate and reasonable actions to preserve the life and health of a born alive infant, um, which they define as an infant at any stage of development, um, which can include infants that are far too young to ever survive outside the womb. Um, and it can include circumstances where the baby has anomalies, um, where you know an organ hasn't formed and there's no way that they can survive long-term. Or, um, you know, mom is having a lot of health problems leading to the, you know, very preterm birth of an infant. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. And all of those situations are really difficult ones, but those are ones where, you know, it's our standard of care right now to talk to families about, you know, what's going on, what the chances are, and in situations where, you know, it would be futile to resuscitate a baby to try to preserve their life, we give the option of, you know, having comfort care. And what that means is, you know, wrapping the baby up, you know, having some time with the family, maybe taking photos, having last rites or a baptism, and having those moments, which, you know, families who are going through this unimaginable trauma really, you know, can feel are so important to their well-being as a family and, you know, going forward. And but this would require us instead to, you know, take a lot of resuscitative efforts and not give families that choice. Um, so it's essentially telling families, you know, this is what must happen. Um, doctors are going to have to do resuscitation, which in, a, in an infant, you know, means sometimes breathing tubes, IVs, chest compressions, those sorts of things, which you know, I don't, I don't feel is ethical in certain situations. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just an, an unusual thing for the government to be dictating to people in my perspective and kind of terrifying for us. Yeah, I imagine. Um, and those, those penalties, if, you were not to do those, uh, you know, pretty aggressive treatments um, in in futile cases, and, and I want to get to that. But uh, what, what what were the? It's a felony, right? The, if this law were to pass, if this initiative uh, were to pass, right? Yeah, basically anyone in the situation, you know, any employer, employee of the hospital, person walking by a janitor or whatever would, would be able to report, you know, I don't think the physician did enough here to preserve the life of the infant. And then we would have to kind of under this vague language, um, be potentially up to go to jail for up to 20 years or um, be fined up to $50,000. Those are the terms that are in the bill. Wow. Anything to add to that, Timothy? No, I, I think Lauren really uh, summed it up very well. Um, I think the, the the authors and the proponents of this legislation try to, you know, paint um, paint this the uh, paint pregnancy as a uh, kind of a black and white type of uh, issue, where in reality um, the ones who are are dealing with these complications and helping families through these complications are 
know all too well that um, there is a lot of uh, very challenging decisions and a lot of a lot of gray in um, these circumstances and um, and it's and it's um, you know it's challenging to to tell these families that they're going to lose a baby but I with this legislation to, to tell families that this child isn't going to survive but we're going to have to provide um, additional uh, medical care outside of like a standard kind of palliative care um, approach is just uh, cruel. You know, I, I've had um, a lot of different situations where families are given this news and, and ultimately they want to be able to um, deliver a, a live newborn um, uh, hold that newborn, say goodbye, tell that, that baby and have their family around them, um, that they're loved. And this legislation is going to really prevent, um, that from being able to happen because I think, you know, the providers seeing that we could be potentially prosecuted and put in jail for up to 20 years because someone felt like we didn't do enough is going to cause people to, um, to be much more, uh, conservative in terms of their management. And it's going to, I think, a lot uh, drive a lot of people away from providing obstetrical care and, and wanting to even be involved in, in these cases, um, knowing that they may uh, face tens of thousands of dollars of fines and, and you know, felony charges. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a scary thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, indeed it is. Well, give, could you give... Um one or two examples of um, how is it that, um, or maybe not how, but um, uh, babies are born every day. Um, not all of them are born fully developed or give an example of where, where this would be, you know. Sure. I think, you know, a common, uh, uh, one of the more common things that we can see is um uh, something that we call like pre-viable preterm birth. So um, this is when somebody comes in um, at a very early gestational age, you know, full term is considered 40 weeks. Um, oftentimes um, around 24 weeks is considered after, I'm sorry, after 24 weeks is considered a period where we're able to intervene and we're able to um, resuscitate a newborn mm -hmm. um, prior to 24 weeks. Um, that is uh, uh, very challenging the earlier and earlier you get. And part of the reason that is um, resuscitative efforts are not uh, are not something that we can provide in a baby that comes in at 18, 19, 20 weeks is that the lungs are actually just not developed yet. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we can see, um, unfortunately, with, you know, all too commonly is that somebody comes in at 19 weeks, um, they either have been having um, bleeding uh, throughout the pregnancy or their water broke early, or there's an issue with their cervix where their cervix dilated early and they're in labor and there's nothing that we can do to stop that labor. And they ultimately end up delivering um, a live newborn at, at 20 weeks gestation. Mm -hmm. Just because of the, of the limits that um, uh, of fetal development at that gestational age, 
there is just nothing that we can do to um, try to save that baby. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that this this legislation or the way that this initiative is is worded is that there's no uh, there's no kind of cut up or gestational age. They say any live born infant needs to be provided resuscitative efforts. And so what that looks like is you know, placing a breathing tube, um, even though that there's not lung tissue developed to be able to accept those breaths, mm-hmm. um, providing chest compressions. And in reality, in, the, in, in a situation that's just this tragic, that baby should be held by their parents, mm-hmm. you know, and they should be able to be said, you know, ha- allow the family to say goodbye. And, and this legislation is not going to allow that to happen because mm-hmm. of potential threats of, you know, felony charges and, and fines. Right. It's, it, it sounds like uh, what you're saying is that it, uh, a tragedy in, in, you know, in a parent's, a young parent's life, usually a young parent, um, is going to be compounded if this were to pass. That tragedy oh, would yeah. be compounded. Absolutely. Absolutely. I Mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, the grief of a, of a pregnancy loss never leaves a family. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and as a, you know, as a, as a physician, um, who sees these types of cases, um, I know I'm never, I, I, there's not anything that I can do that's going to erase that grief, but I, I do feel strongly that I can at least try to make this situation a bit better and Mm -hmm. and you know the nursing staff um on labor and delivery and the other physicians involved you know we we take a lot of care in trying to provide some peace through this process and you know if we're if we can't provide this uh caring environment um and we're going to be having a you know a full neonatal team or i'm not sure exactly what it would look like it's just gonna. It's just gonna add, compound that tragedy to that family. Hmm. Um, Lauren, um, you, I think you spoke earlier about um, ethics, right? And and your profession has uh, uh, a lot of ethical dilemmas, <laughs> uh, but um, but ethics play a very strong part in your profession. Could you speak to that um, and how it applies if if this uh, you know, it, 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 and does that inform your opposition to LR-131? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a, a core tenet of pediatrics is that we do a lot of decision-making with families. Um, we call that shared decision-making, and particularly in situations that are tough is where that comes out. You know, we really seek to inform families about, you know, what potential outcomes are, what risks are, Um, you know, how different care could look and elicit some of their own values about what they think is important and what they think um, is necessary for them as a family to to deal with a a difficult situation. And so that's that's one. I mean, this bill completely takes that away. Um, They don't have any input into that decision anymore. Mm. And the the other one is, you know, in, in cases where care is really completely futile, no baby has ever survived at 19 weeks. It's not a thing. It's not a thing that's possible. You you know, we have have made great advances in neonatal care, um, but it's still it's still a rough go at 24 weeks. That's you know a little over half of a pregnancy, really. 
Um, and those babies are less than a pound. And that's a long journey for a family. But, mm. you know, at 24 weeks, we do a lot of shared decision making around, you know, what that care looks like and how um, they want us to handle that situation. But at 18 weeks, there's there's no chance. At 19 weeks, at 20 weeks, there's no chance of survival. And so for me to do something that's painful and traumatic um, to someone who, who has no a zero chance of coming through that, you know, I just, that's what, that's what made my colleagues who are neonatologists look at this and go, I just, I just couldn't do that. You know, I'd, I'd leave the state if that's what they were asking me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's not part of what we're here to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then the, kind of the obvious question is why is this even on the ballot? I mean, you know, I know you can't speak to maybe the motivations of the majority in the Montana legislature or the governor, but what would you, how do you understand that this has come to to be on the ballot? Sure. I mean, I think the sponsor of the the original bill is Matt Regeer, who's a legislator out of the Flathead. Mm-hmm. And he's talked a little bit about, you know, why he thinks he's you know, he says every, you know, it's always better to be in an ICU than to be dead. Um, life must be preserved at all costs. And for us, that's just not an accurate representation of what this actually means for families. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes out of this myth of, you know, abortion care. I mean, I mean, they're lumping, you know, all of reproductive health care in with this abortion debate. And you know, to be clear, abortion care is an important part of health care for, for women, for families. You know, there are situations where, you know, that's absolutely life-saving care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's important for people to be able to make these decisions that are so impactful on them. And I'm fully in that camp. But, you know, they, they're making this bill about abortion, which is frankly mystifying to me because that's not its main impact. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Tim. I was just, I was going to say, I, I agree with Lauren in, in that is that, you know, the, it, it's, a, this bill is, is really trying to um, uh, lump abortion care with all, all kind of reproductive health care. But the, the way that this, um, this initiative is, is written, it, it, it just, uh, it's not going to impact, it's going to impact families suffering from pregnancy complications and pregnancy loss you know that's that's who is going to be impacted by this legislation is families with very very desired pregnancies who are suffering from um, just absolutely tragic circumstances yeah yeah um my my, our our son uh, was born premature it was induced uh labor because um his mother had uh, uh, some uh, eclampsia, some <laughs> con- serious conditions, and uh, but he was born four weeks premature, and I was absolutely, completely impressed with the the staff and um, how we, you know, how we were treated. And four weeks early, I, I came to learn real quickly it was really nothing compared to. Um, like you said, some of the much more premature, uh, babies who were, you know, so I, you know, I would walk through the neonatal 
uh, and see all these really tiny little babies. And uh, I mean, and they were taking uh, good care of them. My son is like 26 now. <laughs> he's he's healthy. And uh, but um, uh, but I understand the the sort of anxiety. I mean, even at that, it was like, oh, I, I mean, people were telling me, don't you don't need to worry. But I was worried sick, of course. Um, and uh, but everything turned out well. And I can't imagine where um, that, um, um, you know, what more could, uh, what more could befall somebody, right? And having to uh, take on, um, you know, not even being able to say goodbye um, to, to the child. Um, well, and so if, if they're trying to lump this up in, in some way with the abortion debate, is that number one? It doesn't seem like that. That's there's that much of a connection. But is that is that how it's being promoted and being uh, supported? This LR one thirty one. I think there is that aspect to it. We haven't heard much from the bill sponsor recently on you know his reasoning, but you know I, I think that there is some misinformation out there about you know these late abortions where, you know, medical staff are just taking a baby and, you know, ignoring it. And, and that just doesn't happen. I'm mm. so mystified by where this is coming from, honestly. Um, yeah. It's difficult to even know. And it's unnecessary, too. Um, there, there are already laws. There's a Montana law. There's a U.S. law that you can't cause the death of an infant who's viable. Um, so this adds nothing to what's already on the books. Like, mm. we don't do this. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. It's it's really frustrating to try to communicate this when you're in medicine and someone's saying that things happen that, that just don't happen. Yeah. Yep. T Timothy? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, there, you know, I think there's this, this, this um, myth of, of uh, quote unquote botched abortions or, or abortions that end up with a, um, an, a neonate that's born alive. And, and it's just, not something that happens it's part of i think part of kind of a uh, a false narrative and in part of the propaganda um that you see in the abortion debate and it just muddies the water because it makes it challenging to to have these conversations when you're when you're being um asked these questions that are not based in reality and in what it's done is now it's you know we're seeing who it's really going to impact. And um, it's going to impact, again, these families that are having these, these, these terrible complications. And, and again, you know, there are laws that prohibit, you know, purposely, knowingly, or negligently causing the death of a premature infant born alive in the, uh, if the infant is viable, you know? And so, you know, if the infant has a chance to survive outside the womb, um, uh, we're going to provide that type of care. Um, and, and so um, LR131 is only going to criminalize clinicians who provide compassionate care um, to these newborns who unfortunately have no chance of survival. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it sounds like that the, uh, a lot of the uh, political push and shove with uh, abortion is definitely uh, 
impact uh, influence this you know the presentation of this uh referendum to montana voters um well and i know both of you are active in um opposition to uh this uh referendum and say something about uh, those efforts. Sure. So there's a website, no on lr131.org. Um, and that's the Compassion for Montana Families campaign that seeks to kind of tell stories and provide accurate information about what this ballot initiative means. And people can go sign up there to um, take the pledge to resist this bill. I think one of the struggles we're having is information. Um, we are hearing that a lot of people don't know about this. And when people just read the title, you know, it sounds like, oh, yeah, of course, like that makes a lot of sense. But you've got to look at what this actually does and actually means. And um, that's complicated. It's hard to explain. And some of the voices that we're trying to lift up are those of people who've experienced pregnancy complications. And, you know, we had one mom who was brave enough to get up and tell her story about having a baby who mm. had no brain, um, had mm. anencephaly, so so no brain development. And that's not something that is survivable. Mm -hmm. um, and she, in her case, chose to continue her pregnancy to term. Um, and some people can't face that even. That's not something that's possible for them mm -hmm. um, to do. Um, but she did. And she, um, you know, had those moments with her baby where she got to sing lullabies and, and hold her daughter. Um, and she's just horrified that this kind of thing would prevent her from having those moments. Um, and so we're trying to get those stories out there, but they're understandably really hard to tell. Yeah. Oh, I, I heard her telling her story. It was it was absolutely heart wrenching. And she was very brave uh, and, and solid in telling that. Um, and, and that should get out more, I think. Um and so, uh, and no on lr131.org, is that the, did I get that right? Um, the website? Yes. Cool. So, um, and if people want to check out more on that, they can uh, do that. And, and it may, um, uh, one, uh, so I guess um, maybe what we could do is look at, and maybe you want to speculate, maybe you don't about um if uh let's look at if if this passes lauren you already said that you may move out of the state and do you think other physicians might feel the same way i have been hearing this from other physicians you know i i don't think that this ultimately is legal i mean removing this choice from families and the vagueness with which it's worded yeah. Um, you know, probably could be challenged successfully, but, you know, it feels pretty rotten to know that, you know, you might have to defend yourself on this basis. And and I think, you know, we have a healthcare worker shortage and anything that mm -hmm. we're doing to criminalize people for doing their job well is not going to help us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, these, these, these laws that penalize physicians for providing the standard of care um, is not going to help with the physician shortage um, situation that we have in the state. I, I have colleagues in um, nearby Idaho who are leaving the state, you know, with their recent um, uh, laws that they've passed um, criminalizing uh, reproductive health care and abortion care. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so it, you know, it does worry me that, that we could see some of our um, really kind of critical pieces to the medical community um, leave the state. You know, there's uh, only a couple of um, neonatal intensive care units across the state that can provide care to babies that are born at um, 24 weeks mm-hmm. um, or, or in that, in that gestational age. And if we're, um, if we're going to, if we're going to criminalize their work um, in the work of, of obstetricians and, and emergency physicians, um, there are going to be people who leave, you know, who are, who are going to say, this is not, it's not worth the stress and it's not worth, you know, the thought of having to fight um, uh, for doing what's right. And, and if I lose that fight, I could be spending a, a significant amount of time in, in uh, prison. Yeah. It's a, it's a scary thought. That's, that's, that's not good. Well, then on the other hand, uh, what would it mean if this uh, legislative uh, referendum 131 were defeated? We'd be very happy to see it defeated because I think it would mean that people had gotten the um, right information about what this is about. Um, But I mean, it's only part of many efforts that I've seen in the last few years in the state to criminalize medical care. Um, You know, we've had a number of bills come from legislators who really haven't made the effort to talk to medical professionals or understand um, the the true issues around the care. Um, We've seen that with, you know, medical care for um, children and adults who are transgender um, being kind of brought up in session and um, other, you know, abortion care that we're seeing in the states around us. You know, the, uh, you know, I hate to see it, but the Montana GOP voted for their platform to include an abortion ban without exception for the health of the mother or, um, you know, some of these situations that we see happen every day. And I just, I just worry for people that that's going to impact their well-being. Um, so it's, this is part of a larger effort. And even if this ballot initiative isn't successful, I think we've got to really be careful about defending people's right to make their own medical choices about, mm-hmm. you know, these really private matters. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that'll continue. Yeah, Timothy, do do you want to talk about what, what if if LR one thirty one is defeated? What what do you see uh, after that? You know, I think um, I agree with Lauren. I mean, we've we've seen this just constant chipping away at uh, reproductive health care access and, and rights, and um, I think that the fight will continue. Um, I think it, what we've seen transpire across the country as um, the importance of educating the public about um, the fact that uh, reproductive health care um, is is healthcare, and that there are um, critical, uh, very hard decisions that people make every day um, in that uh, in that area that that uh, are not straightforward decisions and and have a huge impact on somebody's um, overall health and ability to, to lead a, a free and happy life. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think we just need to continue to educate the public. We're seeing across the country, um, 
rheumatologists who are no longer providing kind of standard of care um, treatment for autoimmune diseases because the some of the first line or, or mainstay therapies are um, can be abortifactants and they just don't want to even like enter that realm. And so we're seeing how uh, how all aspects of, of healthcare are being affected by these um, changes in laws and, and legislation and how it's impacting people's health um, across, uh, you know, across the spectrum. Um, you know, we were no longer able to prescribe kind of standard medication over the counter or not over the counter medication, but standard medication um, to help women uh, uh, with miscarriages um, at at Walmart, their pharmacy is no longer filling mm. mesoprostol um, uh, for miscarriage uh, management because they don't want to be involved with potential, um, uh, um, you know, abortion care. Um, but it, but these medications are used for lots of, you know, standard therapy or stand or standard therapies for many different conditions, um, and I just think that when we see this, these chipping away of rights, it's going to have a broad uh, impact on, on lots of people's um, day-to-day lives that, that no one ever really considered. And so it just goes back to the importance of making sure that we're, you know, trying to educate the public about the importance of these rights and um, educate the public that, that these are, uh, you know, really, um, private decisions that uh, the state and, and um, the government really shouldn't be playing a role in. Well, um, we could go on, but we are out of time. Um, and uh, this is a very important issue. And uh, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Timothy Mitchell and Dr. Lauren Wilson, for joining us today and talking to us about uh, Legislative Referendum 131. Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thanks for letting us on. You bet. Any good news after that? Well, um, what's the next story? <laughs> there's, are, I don't know about good news. I don't think so. But okay. uh, there's, there's lots of important events in the war in Ukraine lately. The gains made by Ukrainian forces against Russian military units seem to have bolstered the corporate media to predict Ukrainian victory is close at hand. But other events call this assessment seriously into question. First of all, the U.S. admitted that the Ukrainian assassin that Ukrainian assassins killed the Putin government uh, supporter Daria Dugina in a car bomb explosion this August, according to Wikipedia. "Quote: The Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, claimed that Ukrainian special services were behind the killing, alleging that they had hired a contractor, a Ukrainian national." who escaped to Estonia after the explosion. According to the FSB, they rented an apartment in the same building where Dugina lived after arriving in Russia the previous month and were present at the same festival Dugina attended before she was killed. The name of the second alleged accomplice was released by FSB on August 29th of this year. The Ukrainian government denied any involvement with Ukrainian presidential advisor Mikhailo Podolyak stating, quote, we are not a criminal state like the Russian Federation, much less a terrorist one, end quote, and later blamed the killing 
on infighting between Russian security agencies. Estonia rejected the claim that Dugina's alleged killer had fled to Estonia. Well, the other shoe drops. Yeah. The, the New York Times uh, reported, and you know it's true if they report it, reported on well, o- October 5th. But they told me when I got my subscription. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On October 5th, the New York Times reported that United States intelligence services believe the attack was authorized by parts of the Ukrainian government. The sources, speaking on condition of anonymity, stated that they had not been uh, aware of the operations ahead of time and that unnamed American officials had delivered in an admonishment to unnamed Ukrainian officials over the assassination, end quote. So the Russians were telling the truth, In contrary to what all the uh, all of what we hear informs us about the Russian character or lack thereof. That's right. Uh, as you've said, many months, many, many weeks, Mark, um, a pox on both their houses. Well, and it, it, it looks like they were telling the truth this time. Um, and, and well, and then the, 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 the next uh the next event um, came the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines being destroyed, which we covered in our last show. Yes. Um, according, to the, according to the State Department's press briefing on September 30th, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, quote, we've significantly increased our production as well as making available to Europe liquefied natural gas. And we're now the leading supplier of LNG, liquefied natural gas, to Europe to help compensate for any gas or oil that it's losing as a result of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. There's a lot of hard work to do to make sure that countries and partners get through the winter. Europe itself has taken very significant steps to both decrease demand, but also to look at ways to pursue the transition to renewables at the same time. And ultimately, this is also a tremendous opportunity. This is Blinken speaking. It's a a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away Vladimir Putin, the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing his imperial designs. That's that's very significant. And that offers tremendous strategic opportunity for the years to come, end quote. So I mean, to sum yeah, up, um, and it's all and all energy is Russian and it's all evil, right? Right, and and no, there, our, there but ours no is all ours, ours is all good. Uh, yeah, I could. And and our ours meaning like they they use the royal we, you know, uh, with you know uh, yeah, all the all right. the big oil corporations. Um, but to sum up, the U.S. publicly declared it did not want the pipeline built did not want Germany to buy Russian and oil gas, threatened to destroy the pipeline, and benefited most from the destruction by increasing European dependence on U.S. liquefied natural gas. Who did the West blame? Well, Russia, of course. Mm -hmm. The West accused Russia of blowing up its own $20 billion pipeline and Russia's last major non-military leverage to bring the war to an end. Oh, that's not a one-sided account. (laughs) And and there is more, right? It's just, you're just getting started. I'm just sort of getting warmed up here. Um, After the pipeline explosions came the unwitting suicide bombing of the Kerch Bridge, which connects the Crimean Peninsula with the Russian east shore of the Black Sea. It's like a 12-mile bridge, I think. Yeah, it's very impressive. 
Yeah. And it kind of looks, reminds me of the, the bridge, the Key West bridge, right? I don't know if you've been down right. there, but um, anyway, um, uh, apparently uh, the truck driver uh, did not know he was carrying massive explosives. That's what made it a unwitting suicide bombing. Oh. In any event, the bombing knocked out one lane of automobile roadway and caused damage to the railroad line. And this is on this is in Russian territory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the railroad line is back up and running, while the one auto lane may take weeks to repair. Almost immediately after, <laughs> get, uh, the, you can't make this stuff up. Sometimes, no. The Ukrainian post office, I mean, within hours, issued a stamp celebrating the bombing of the Kerch Bridge. And that's according to the Telegraph, a British newspaper reporting on August, October eighth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can remember a Ukrainian friend of mine, um, who's also grew up in Zaporizhia, uh, saying that there was su- there was an event that I've forgotten about now, but she thought it was especially interesting that it was advertised before it even happened. Ah, yes. Yeah. So there's no, there's no collusion. It was just totally random. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, having the Ukrainian post office issue a stamp within hours after (laughs) the bridge bombing. uh, Well, that's sort of admission right there, I would say. Um, That's right. It's a forever stamp though. It's a, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Bridges aren't forever, but stamps are. But stamps are. (laughs) Yes. Um, So um, furthermore, um, uh, Newsweek, uh, that uh, U- U.S. news magazine, reported on September 4th, um, the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine, so this is like the the leadership of the Ukraine mm-hmm. military, yeah. made the claim in an operations update that was shared on Facebook. The September 4th post said offensives continued uh, toward Bakhmut and Avdivka, in the separatist regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. It continued, quote, over the past 24 hours, the enemy, Russia, has launched more than 10 missiles and more than 24 airstrikes on military and civilian objects on the territory of Ukraine. In particular, civilian infrastructure was affected in the areas of Paramoha, Husarivka, Novomykolovka, and Bihol and Bilohiria settlements. Okay. Um, apologies to Ukraine, Ukrainians for that misstatement. Okay. We'll, we'll just quote. say a Russian tried to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's an end quote. But the same spokesperson claimed the Russian military had been using out of date missiles. Here's the most significant part, right? The same spokesperson claimed the Russian military had been using out of date missiles during the war. It added, Quote, due to the lack of high-precision weapons, the enemy began to use outdated S-300 anti-aircraft-guided missiles more often. End quote. More than 500 such missiles were launched on the territory of Ukraine, some of which did not reach the target. The occupiers are armed with several thousand... This is Ukraine speaking. Mm-hmm. The occupiers are armed with several thousand such missiles, but most of them are unusable. End quote. And, you know... <laughs> All throughout the war, the corporate media has claimed without evidence that Russia was running out of advanced missiles and was on the brink of collapse. I give a hat tip to the blog Moon of Alabama blog site, which documented just a sampling of that. There's probably like three dozen articles Mm -hmm. since the beginning of the war saying Russia was running out of missiles. 
right? Or running mm-hmm. out of, they didn't have any good missiles, right? Um, and so uh, then on October 8th, uh, ABC News reported, quote, Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the biggest in Europe, had lost its last remaining external power source as a result of renewed shelling and is now relying on emergency diesel generators. The UN nuclear watchdog said Saturday, the International Atomic Energy Agency said that the plant's link to a 750 kilovolt line was cut at around 1 a.m. Saturday. Mm-hmm. It cited official information from Ukraine, as well as reports from IAEA experts at the site, which is held by Russian forces. All six reactors at the plant are shut down, but they still require electricity for cooling and other safety functions. Plant engineers have begun work to repair the damaged power line and the plant's generators, not all of which are currently being used. Each have sufficient fuel for at least 10 days, the IAEA said. Quote, the resumption of shelling hitting the plant's sole source of external power is tremendously irresponsible. End quote. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi said in a statement, in the past, the corporate media has repeated the absurd, and that's end quote. In the past, the corporate media has repeated the absurd idea that Russian forces are the ones doing the shelling of the nuclear power plants. Why is that absurd? Why would Russia bomb its own forces who occupy the plants? Right. The truth is that Ukrainian forces are actually shelling the nuclear power plants and have cut also cut off its external power. Extremely and, reckless. And very reckless. And consider the source. You know, a spokesperson for IAEA? Yep. Director General? Yeah, that... You know, more than just a spokesman. I mean, the guy that hold, holds the reins and uh, doesn't have to answer to anybody and can say what he believes. Yeah, director... So that is as damning as anything I've seen. Yeah, Director General Grossi, though I didn't refuse to name names, but it, mm-hmm. it just it's just like common sense, right? Right. I mean, why why would Russians, bomb, you know, shell the plant that they're occupying? It just does not make any sense. And the, and the media has run, and they don't they they sort of underplay that kind of side of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, and all of this. All of these events that I'm describing, which um, are major events that have happened in the last month or two, um, are all kind of leading up to a big, another big event that happened um, uh, just here on October 10th. Um, and CBS News reported on October 10th, quote, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Monday that people were killed and injured in multiple missile strikes across Ukraine including the first bombardment of the capital, Kiev, in months. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charlie Diegata said the strikes, which could signal a major escalation in the eight-month war, appear to be entirely punitive. Retaliation meant to terrorize Ukrainian civil- civilians in densely populated urban neighborhoods, close to government buildings, with one even hitting a children's playground. The lethal barrage smashed into civilian areas, knocking out power and water, shattering buildings, and killing at least 14 people. Mm -hmm. The bombardment came two days after Russia suffered a serious blow with the bombing that damaged its sole bridge to Crimea. 
Ukraine's emergency service said nearly 100 people were wounded in the morning rush hour attacks that Russia launched from the air, sea, and land against at least 14 regions, spanning from Lviv in the west to Kharkiv in the east. So it covered the entire country of Ukraine. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at a map, there's no part of the country that was spared, really. Many of the attacks occurred far from the war's front lines, which is in the east. The CBS News continued, the attacks plunged much of the country into a blackout, depriving hundreds of thousands of people of electricity and creating a shortage so severe, Ukrainian authorities announced they would have to stop power exports to Europe starting Tuesday. Power outages also often deprive residents of water, given the system's reliance on electricity to run pumps and other equipment. The head of Ukraine's law enforcement said Monday's attack damaged 70 infrastructure sites, of which 29 are critical. Zelensky said that of the 84 cruise missiles and 24 drones Russia fired, Ukrainian forces shot down 56. Now, I'm just going to take a pause on that before we get to the real conclusion. If you do the math, 84 cruise missiles plus 24 drones minus 56 shot down equals 52 targets, not 70, not 70 targets. So mm-hmm. there's a inconsistency there that they, they, each one of them can't attack multiple right. sites. So, so anyway, that, 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 the, the math. The, and, the, and it's not like they were getting, they were, they were taken out on the return <laughs> from, right, right, from right. doing their, their business. They're only, they're only one way. Yeah. It's a right? one way product. Yeah. Um, so, Andrew Yermak, a senior advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky, said the strikes had, quote, no practical military sense and that Russia's goal was to cause a humanitarian catastrophe. Russian President Vladimir Putin said his forces used precision weapons, quote, to target key energy infrastructure and military command facilities in retaliation for Kyiv's terrorist actions. A reference to Ukraine's attempt to repel Moscow's invasion forces including an attack Saturday on a key bridge between Russia and the annexed Crimean Peninsula that Putin called a terrorist act, masterminded by Ukrainian special services. Putin vowed a tough and proportional, quote, response should Ukraine carry out further attacks that threaten Russian security. Uh, He was quoted, Putin was quoted, no one should have any doubts about it, he told, uh, end quote, he told Russian Security Council by video. Um, yeah, and um, as we all have learned, uh, first take leaders at their word to begin to understand the truth. Right. Yeah, and and it, so so kind of to, to you know to summarize a little bit that really um, the the all this media blather about Russia running out of missiles. Well, obviously they had at least fifty six or 84 cruise missiles, which Mm -hmm. are highly accurate. I mean, these are sophisticated weapons and that there was only, you know, uh, only, and, and actually it's a tragedy, even 14 people being killed. But for all of that, um, it's amazing that it was only 14 or 19, depending on who you hear. But, um, sometimes when trying to get to the bottom of things, the simplest answer may be the most correct. Mm -hmm. To me, what, to me, what Putin did was to show that his words of July 7th, as reported in Haaretz, right. among others, was telling the truth. 
He said, quote, everyone should know that by and large, we haven't started anything yet in earnest. He added, at the same time, we don't reject peace talks, but those who reject them should know that the further it goes, the harder it will be for them to negotiate with us, end quote. Mm-hmm. The media drumbeat that Russia was out of sophisticated missiles proved to be patently false. The idea that Russia is seriously losing the war is likewise undermined. What the Russians did was to use highly precise cruise missiles to knock out Ukraine's electric infrastructure. And with only 14 to 19 deaths, Russia looks like they are restraining themselves from causing civilian harm as much as can be in the brutality called war. Recall that when the U.S. invaded Iraq using shock and awe missiles aimed at Iraqi infrastructures, upwards of 10,000 Iraqis were killed. And hundreds of thousands more injured. This is just more evidence that the U.S. neocons in charge of this have to resort to using the corporate media as propaganda because the war is not really going as well as advertised. More likely, just the opposite. Yeah, more likely, it's exactly what we don't hear. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's it, it's so much effort expended in trying to mislead us. And I'm glad you made the comparison between the nefarious things that Russia is doing and what was done in Iraq, not once, but twice. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you know, you can't do one thing and then then and and then blame someone else for doing the same thing. Again, you know, it's it's kind of like I, I do not support Putin's invasion of Ukraine. That doesn't mean it can't be understood. And in the end, I mean, look, uh, this the war is only going to end in negotiations. And yeah. the sooner they happen, the, the better it's going to be. The U.S. has not been pushing Ukraine to, to negotiate, which says to me what they're trying to do is to uh, somehow uh, weaken Russia so that you know Putin can be overthrown, and remember he was democratically elected as as democratic mm-hmm. as we have, at right. least, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think it's free and fair elections at all, but um, uh, but you know he was elected in kind of a show of democracy, and here we are. Uh, we don't like that kind of democracy. We want our kind of democracy, where right. someone <laughs> we can control. Don't have to go to the Ukraine to learn that. Just go south of the border. That's right. <laughs> look That's at ex- look at Southern Command and all yeah. the mischief they've been causing for centuries. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the U.S. definitely helped overthrow the democratically elected president of Bolivia, not in Chile, and, 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 and yeah, I mean, and even yeah, further it goes back, on but, and on and on. That's right, and so it, it's very, um, you know. The discussion about that this is about democracy rings extremely hollow uh, right. and uh, is really pretty much a, a pretext for uh, defending U.S. empire. And which is, you know, again, is uh, lots of people in the U.S., I think, don't believe that we're an empire. Um, I think we certainly are. And uh, and even even the people at the top you know, don't have illusions about that we're somehow this benign democracy beset on all sides by dictators and, and autocrats of all kinds. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. 
practically tragic because the, the current administration was elected with the expectation that we're going to straighten things out. You know, you know, the the greed and the avarice and the self-dealing that characterized the former administration is out the door right. and we're new and better. And the people I've seen in the State Department um, seem to be using the same playbook. It's not as blatant and it's certainly and it's not conspicuously, um, uh, you know, we'll do this if you do that for us and self-dealing yeah but but the consequences seem to be the same well it's you know the the neocons really believe you know they believe in their ideology right and yeah what's what's so scary is that i mean i i think there were quite a few people in the in the trump administration who were just grifters right i mean trump yeah absolutely grifter I, I, thank you for elaborating because i tried to make the point but it was just a glancing shot well and, and well it was a good point though and i but i i, I think the neocons are true believers and this yeah. is this is what's really scary is that i mean honestly i think that uh you know you can make the case that putin is probably more rational than the neocons in charge of u.s foreign policy i agree well, remember Eric Hoffer saying, beware the true believer. They are the real nemesis of civilization. That's Yeah, that's right. That's right. So in the hopes of, I mean, you know, I mean, we're going to keep continuing covering this. I think that uh, uh, why it has even impact on, you know, on Montana, for instance, I mean, we've got we got 150 nuclear weapons uh, in the ground here, which can send, uh, you know, uh, 450 warheads at least, if not more, to various targets all around the world. And then uh, we also would become the nuclear sponge, as Richard Bishop has has mentioned in previous shows. Uh, I'm I'm not in favor of that. Um, <laughs> I'm not in favor of us being the nuclear sponge and. Um, this is this is the fire that the neocons are playing with, I think. Thank everyone for listening to our show. Um, please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all the great programs on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. And please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And Jim, I hope you will be with us next time, too. Yes, I certainly plan on it, even though it's going to be at the end of October. And um, since it's Halloween, maybe we should we can get um, Mick, the the soundest of all sound men, to make an appearance. (laughs) Yeah, he could he could scare us up. Yeah, he always scared me. He, yeah. he's, he's the man for the job. He, he would be the man for the job. Well, <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Jim. Good show. Good show, everybody. Thank you, all the participants out there in Radioland. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst It's here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the 
Democracy is coming to die. 